6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Philippians, an introduction. So Paul cried with a loud voice saying, do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, and he sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Obviously impressed by the miracle, but also having heard and realizing the distinctives that made these people different than the others. Sir, what must I do to be saved? What a question. That's a good question we all need to have the answers to. What do we have to do to be saved? Well, they said to him, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Now, this causes a lot of misunderstanding, because that's not a, that's not a doctrine. It's a prophecy when he says, and thy house. Because indeed, they all will accept Christ, and they all become as a group part of the church in, in Philippi. And uh, so here is the first male convert in Europe, this jailer. Anyway, and they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and, and to all that were in his house. And he took, them the same, they, he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all his straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them, and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Praise God. And when it was day, <laughs> I love this coming up here. When it was day, the magistrates sent the sergeant, saying, let those men go. And the keeper of the prison told the saying to Paul, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now, therefore, depart and go in peace. <laughs> and Paul said unto them, they have beaten us, openly uncondemned, being Romans, and they have cast us into prison, and now do they thrust us out privately? Nay, <laughs> verily, let them come themselves and fetch us out. I love the way Paul rubs their noses in this. They, they now, the magistrates, have a jurisdiction problem because they didn't realize these are Romans, and they're in a town that takes that sort of thing very seriously. Under Valerian law, no Roman could ever be bound, and this was considered to be an offense against the empire. The magistrates are in real big trouble. Under Posian law, that forbade any Roman to be flogged. Separate law, then they've got a whole list of laws they violated by treating these guys without proper due process. And the magistrates are at substantial risk themselves. And that's why I, I just picture this. I could just see Paul <laughs> rubbing their nose in because he had a trump card. He was a Roman citizen, and they now were in serious trouble. Anyway, at verse 38, the sergeants told these words unto the magistrates, <laughs> and they feared when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and besought them and brought them out and desired them to depart out of the city. And my paraphrase would be, they say, oh, please, would you be so kind as to leave quietly? 
This aspect is going to be very important to us to remember when we turn from Luke's narrative here in Acts to Paul's letter to the Philippians. See, addressing a Roman colony from the Roman capital, writing as a citizen to citizens. Uh, Paul returns in his thinking to a political franchise mindset here as an apt symbol of the higher privilege of their heavenly calling. Uh, to the political life as a suggestive metaphor to the duties of the Christian professor. If you're going to profess Christianity, he's, he, Paul sees a, he really draws upon a very natural uh, uh, emphasis here, comparing the, 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 uh, the, the um, mindset of the Philippian to, the, to their Roman citizenship. We have a citizenship much higher that carries with it responsibilities as well as privileges. And he's going to dwell on that uh, in his letter as we go. In chapter 1, in fact, it says, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The parallel being you're conducting yourself as a Roman citizen in Rome. And uh, in chapter 3, he goes so far as our citizenship is in heaven, in contrast to our citizenship here with the prevailing empire and so forth. The parallel is very well drawn. Continuing in Acts 16, starting about verse 40. And they went out of the prison and entered into the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they comforted them and departed. So we now have seen three very different converts. Yeah, remember in Galatians, Paul says, neither Jew, nor G, uh, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus, emphasizing the homogeneity there. Well, here we have a purple dealer, a sales rep, a proselytitis of Thyatira. We have a girl with a divining spirit, a demon-possessed gal. And we have this very Roman jailer. Well, the purple dealer and so forth is an Asian engaged in an important and very lucrative business devoted to the truths of the Old Testament. That was her background. The girl with the divining spirit was a Greek. In fact, treated by law as a mere chattel without any social or political rights, employed by her masters to trade upon the impressionable ignorant, bearing the name of a Pythian god and the reputed source of Greek inspiration, and uh, with a similarity to what we associate in today's world with the New Age. And then we have the Roman jailer, equally removed from each one of these, very different. Each one is very different from the other. Uh, and uh, here the jailer had a very subordinate office under the government, and whose worship was likely very political in its tone. So for the proselyte, next the Greek, and then the Roman, you could use this as a model to symbolize the progress of Christianity throughout the world that follows. And from the proselyte to the Greek and then to the Roman. And uh, this also illustrates the two great revolutions, social revolutions Christianity has affected. The amelioration of women and the abolition of slavery. And uh, so this is the first recorded instance where whole families are gathered into the church. Lydia and her household, the jailer and all belonging to him, were all baptized in Christ and starting the first church in Europe here. And uh, also, as in ancient days, the patriarch was the recognized priest of his clan. So in the Christian church, the father of the house is divinely appointed center of the religious life to his own family. It's interesting what grows out of each of these. The church in the house of Philemon grew into the church at Colossae. You find that in Philemon uh, too. The church in the house of Nymphus becomes the church of Laodicea in Colossians 4, verse 15. And the church in the house of Aquila and Priscilla become the churches of both Ephesus and of Rome. And you find that in 1 Corinthians 16 and also in Romans 16. You can pick up that and tie that together. The history of Paul's connection with Philippi assumes a prominence uh, 
that's quite out of proportion to the importance of the place itself. The place originally was very strategic, that's why it gets its name and its unusual citizenship rights, but subsequently is not that uh, significant. And yet, in Paul's epistles, we find his repeated relationship with Philippi emphasized as one of affection and intimacy, unlike any of the others. The persecutions which the apostle endured there uh, were more severe and impressed themselves deeply into his memory because he alludes to his experiences at Philippi again and again and again in his other letters. In uh, Thessalonians, he says, but even after what we'd suffered before when we were shamefully treated, as you know, in Philippi, he makes allusions there in 1 Thessalonians 2. Uh, and then, uh, and finally, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here, in, uh, to, here to be in me in Philemon and so on. So his marvelous deliverance is without a parallel in his history even before or after. And his labor surpasses his earlier and later achievements. The unwavering loyalty of the Philippian converts is a constant source of solace to the apostle in his numerous trials. He, he has an intimacy here and an affection. With the, but that's one of the reasons his letter becomes so dear. So many people regard the, his epistle of the Philippians as their most precious of all the epistles. In Philippians 4, he speaks of the Philippians as his joy and his crown, his brothers that I long for. And uh, for them alone, he consents to receive gifts of money and uh, uh, for the relief of his personal needs. He doesn't do that elsewhere, but he does uh, receive it from them. That's, that, that's the force of in, uh, uh, intimacy there. And uh, it's interesting to the Philippians alone, he writes in a language that's unclouded by any shadow of displeasure or disappointment. There isn't any correction. There isn't any admonitions for serious sins. There isn't any call for repentance. All the kinds of things that color virtually all his other letters are absent here. It's a very intimate, uh, uh, deeply uh, affectionate letter. There are some similarities between the letter to the Philippians and Jesus' letter to Smyrna in the seven letters of seven churches. And we'll explore those parallels uh, later in the, in the studies here. Um, it's interesting, though, that Paul's first uh, visit to Philippi ended abruptly in the middle of a storm of persecution. The apostle left behind a legacy of suffering to this newborn church. This church the, the, the letter to Philippians is going to deal with how to be joyful in suffering because they, he suffered there, yes, but he also recognized, anticipated the suffering that they would go through, which was substantial. And uh, so the, uh, the afflictions of the Macedonian Christians and of the Philippians particularly are more than once alluded in Paul's letters in 2 Corinthians 8 and a number of other places. So good, how do we really apply this uh, to ourselves? You know, we may ask the question, why doesn't God guide us today like in the book of Acts? Well, Let's take a better look at these, the Spirit's guiding in the book of Acts. You know, I think that's probably one of the most uh, desperate calls we get from, from uh, our friends is, uh, you know, how to get guidance. How do we know where God really wants us to go? And how, and how do we confirm that? And do we, do we often uh, expect it to be some kind of miraculous, uh, drama, very dramatic kind of calling. Well, let's take a look. at Paul himself must have been very, very puzzled. Let's, let's re reflect on his... Um, goings and comings, as how he, he was he, a big part of his calling was when he had a big quarrel with Barnabas. They actually had a fight where they split over it. They had an argument over Mark, and they parted. 
And so was that, that, that was of the Holy Spirit. Instead of having two guys, you then have four because Barnabas, you know, they, 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 Barnabas takes Mark and, and Paul takes Silas, and now you have four out there rather than two. So it sounds like a strange way to go, but it was used by the Holy Spirit to bear fruit. And uh, Paul wanted to preach the gospel, so he passed through Syria and Cilicia and came to Derby and Lystra. And that's where he met Timothy. And, uh, uh, and so he wanted to go on to proconsular Asia, and he could not do it. He was sick. Some kind of infirmity of the flesh uh, was upon him, so he couldn't go on. It was necessary that he should take another direction, and he went to Galatia and preached there. Then he turned back again. There was no reason that he could not could understand. He, it was a picture of cross-currents. A picture of difficulties, perplexity, and darkness. Then he felt the lure of Bithynia. He was sure that's where he should go. Here, the Spirit said no. He had to go west, so he went on, but probably perplexed all the way through here. Then he came the vision of the man of Bethsaida. Now, here's a situation. He had a vision now. That's, that's clearer to us, right? He came to the vision of Macedonia. And I suspect that when he later on got to know Luke and talked, they talked it over, Luke was able to write in, with the advantage of hindsight when he writes his narrative in Acts 16. But uh, it's interesting how the Spirit forbade him preaching in Asia, and the Spirit of Jesus drove him ever and ever on towards Troas, and then finally through a vision got him to cross over into Europe. And uh, the guidance of the Holy Spirit is validated by the fruit. The Philippi, of course, Thessalonica, then Berea, then Athens, then Corinth. So we see a whole pattern, and now when you stand back, you can see the Spirit moving in a very deliberate, strategic way. But uh, how much of that did Paul know about step by step? Uh, not likely. And so, see, the guidance of the Holy Spirit was recognized by these men, not always by flaming visions, not by words that you actually hear in human ears, but by circumstances, by commonplace things, by difficulties, by dark things, by disappointments. And uh, the man the Spirit will guide is the man who is in an attitude in which it's possible for the Spirit to guide him, an attitude of life, of loyalty to the Lord, faith in the guidance of the Spirit, and constant watchfulness. I have friends that remind me that uh, the Holy Spirit can use a bloody nose. He knows how to close doors. And not only open them, he can close doors, keep you from going those, through those that you shouldn't. And uh, he, will, he will use all these things to guide. The whole issue is, are you open? Are you guiding? Are you patient? And uh, those are all issues that... Uh, uh, one, of the, <laughs> one of the prayers that we should keep in mind, when we, especially when we're going through disappointments or difficulties, we should pray that the lessons not be wasted. That God is teaching us things, and uh, and uh, His guidance isn't often what we expect. It's the watcher for the Lord who sees the Lord, and that's the, our our the real key to being led by the Spirit is an attitude. And so, how does God uh, guide? Well, in understanding doctrine, we expect unanimous agreement when you, that, that closes ranks. When there's no sense of direction, okay then it's persistent obedience. You, you bloom where you're planted until you get a sense of direction. In terms of our relationship with others, it should just simply be responsible concern. That's always the right answer. Irreconcilable differences? Okay, cordial separation. Customs, rituals? No, the, what's the important principle? It's the key. What directions to take? Where do you get a sense of peace? And where is it flowing? 
And uh, you got a major change on the horizon, there'll be a vision or call that will make that clear. And so, some suggestions. About five years pass between Paul's first and second visit to Philippi. But meanwhile, his communications with this church seemed to be frequent and intimate. He, he, he wrote them frequently. In AD 57, when Paul was residing in Ephesus, he dispatched Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia. It would seem that Timothy did not go with Erastus to Corinth, but remained in Macedonia. So Timothy stays there in Macedonia or in Philippi. And uh, something else that's interesting about the Philippian church, they were, they were subject to abject poverty and very, very intense persecution. But they nevertheless were the foremost church in their promptness and their cordiality and of the relief of the needs of their poorer brethren in Judea. Back in Judea, the church in Jerusalem was in worse shape of all. And the Philippian church, despite their own problems, their own poverty, and the, and the ordeals they're going through, were conspicuous in giving Paul resources for himself, of course, but also for the church in Judea. And uh, Paul makes reference of this to some extent in, second, in a second letter to Corinth um, in chapter 8. He reads, says, How that in great deal of affliction the abundance of their, speaking of the Philippians, of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of the liberality. For to their power I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. This they did, not as we hoped, but first gave, of, gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. So he celebrates that. When we get to the autumn of 57 AD, Paul is released from his engagements in Asia, revisited his European churches. He visited Macedonia on the way to Corinth. We find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians 1, makes allusions to it and so on. He'd intended to sail directly to Israel, but he received information about a plot on his life. So he changed his plans and returned by land. He avoided that. And uh, thus Macedonia received a double visit. His affectionate relationship with Philippi seemed to rivet him there. The second letter of Corinthians and the letter of Galatians were written from there. And Paul's intimacy and affection with, with uh, the Philippians is that probably that, that uh, causes his letter to the Philippians to be so endearing. Um, as I say, many people regard it as their most intimate, most precious, most comfortable of the letters. And so, well, Paul, of course, ultimately appeals to Rome. It's, that in itself is a gutsy challenge. He, he challenged the hostility of the greatest power the world had ever seen. And the very emperor to whom the appeal was made bears the ignominy of the first systematic persecution of Christians, which went on for several centuries and which ended in establishing the gospel on the ruins of that very empire. And uh, so... And it isn't improbable that Paul really foresaw the importance of his decision when he transferred his cause to the tribunal of Caesar. When he appeals to Caesar, he, he may very well have realized what he was, the path that he was engaging on. In Acts 19, he says he must visit Rome. He uses that expression in Acts 19:21. He had been longing for many years to visit the imperial city, really. That's interesting. The heavenly vision strengthened his purpose because in Acts 23, you must testify in Rome, he's told. So, indeed he was. Now, it's interesting. Many people don't realize this, but I think it, it, it's, it, some scholars believe, and I, I lean this way too, that the writings of Luke 
I call it Luke Volume 1 and Luke Volume 2. We know it as the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. Were the legally required documentation that the law required to precede any appellate, anyone's appealing to, to Caesar, had to have a full description of all the circumstances surrounding his appeal to precede him uh, in that appeal. That makes all the sense in the world. It sounds like Roman law. And that's why many people regard Luke's writings that were uh, sponsored uh, for that very purpose. Uh, and so uh, it's interesting when you read Luke, you can really, that, that seems to come through. Because Luke goes out of his way in his narrative to focus on the things that are of Roman concern. The main thing the Romans weren't concerned is keeping the peace. Their fear was an insurrection of any kind. And so uh, Luke goes out of his way to emphasize that each uprising that he deals with, it was the Jewish leadership, not Paul and his companions, that were the cause of the uprising. And that's, that's very much a defensive posture uh, against the, the, what would be the obvious, the very Roman concern. But there's something else you notice, too, if you watch carefully. All through Luke's writings, the, the centurions are always the good guys. Uh, Luke makes the point that at, uh, at Capernaum, the synagogue there was uh, uh, built by the, it was paid for by the centurion. And uh, everywhere you go, if you watch closely as you read Luke, both the gospel and also the book of Acts, that, uh, that uh, he, he it's, it's a very, very uh, interesting posture he takes in his writings there. And uh, Paul remains in uh, Rome for two whole years, we, we learn. But it didn't impede his missionary work, even while he's in prison. He, uh, he'd, he'd written to the Romans three years prior, uh, six full years before the persecutions of Nero began. And so he was a prisoner for four to five years, uh, from A.D. 58 through about uh, 63. Half of that time he was in Caesarea, and half that time uh, in Rome. And during this period he wrote four letters. He wrote to the Philippians, of course, the one we're so concerned with. He wrote to the Colossians and to the Ephesians. Those are uh, two of my favorite letters. They're very special, uh, and, and uh, they uh, give us insights that are available nowhere else. And then, of course, to Philemon, which is the ultimate example of an intercessory uh, prayer and so forth. All of that was done from Rome. So even though he's in prison, he had a very, very effective uh, ministry that echoes throughout the rest of history. And uh, now, a lot of, some scholars differ on this, but there seems to be evidence that Philippians is distinctive from one of the other three and may have been the earliest of that group of letters from Rome. And so, this is one of the things you'll quickly discover as we actually get into the letter, that it is distinctively affectionate, intimate, and what's really noteworthy, especially if you, when you think of all of Paul's other letters, how important they are doctrinally, Here's a letter that is provocatively free of any doctrinal exhortations. None of them. And um, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, very personal, very intimate, and, and, and clearly uh, 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 harmonizes with Paul. There's no appeal to his apostolic authority. None of that. Um, and uh, in no letter is his communications more lavish or his affection deeper. It's interesting, you see, that uh, in so many of the other letters, he is, his authority is challenged, so he has exercised his apostolic uh, credentials uh, very uh, uh, strongly. Um, but here he's dealing, first of all, with uh, Europeans, not, not uh, uh, the, the, the traditions of the others. And so uh, 
But it's interesting also in his Philippian letter, there's, there's none, of, none of his letters have as many commendations as he has for the Philippians. And uh, nowhere do we see his affection deeper and more intimately communicated. It's it. There are no misgivings of loyalty. There's no uh, suspicions of false play here, duplicity or anything like that. There's no reproaches for disorderly living. You know, you look at the, the, the Corinthian letters and some of these other things, uh, very, very different in concern, very, very different in perspective. Uh, there's no warnings against serious sins. That doesn't don't mean to suggest that there, there weren't some around, but uh, that's not Paul's uh, uh, issue here. No, uh, some of the heavy stuff going on, especially in Corinth and also Galatians of different kinds. Not, 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 not the major issues. There are allusions to them, but very, very uh, softly. And uh, there appears to be only one source of uh, strife or rivalry, and, and those differences seem related to social rather than doctrinal issues, it would seem. We'll deal with that uh, as we go. And so uh, one of the things I'd like you to do for next time is to study very carefully Philippians 1. It's a small enough letter. It would do well to read the whole letter to get a flavor of the whole thing. But focus on chapter 1 and uh, notice its distinctives. And uh, it's really a prelude to some to the incredible parabola that will flow in chapter 2. But uh, read, study chapter 1 very carefully as we continue this very special, very intimate, beloved epistle, the epistle to the Philippians. Let's have a closing word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this precious letter. We do pray, Father, that you would help us feel the heartthrob of Paul as he deals with this precious, precious group. We pray, Father, that you would help us to understand what it is that you would have of us as we apply these lessons to our own lives, as we commit our way into your hands in anticipation of our coming King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Messler, teaching through the book of Philippians. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.